Chapter Five of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter Five. Sussex Journal to Battle through Bromley, Sevenoaks, and Tunbridge. Battle, Wednesday, second January, eighteen twenty-two. Came here to-day from Kensington in order to see what goes on at the meeting to be held here to-morrow of the gentry clergy freeholders and occupiers of land in the rape of hastings to take into consideration the distressed state of the agricultural interest i shall of course give an account of this meeting after it has taken place you come through part of kent to get to battle from the great wen on the surrey side of the thames the first town is bromley the next sevenoaks the next tunbridge and between tunbridge and this place you cross the boundaries of the two counties. From the Surrey Wen to Bromley, the land is generally a deep loam on a gravel, and you see few trees except elm, a very ugly country. On quitting Bromley, the land gets poorer, clay at bottom, the wheat sown on five or seven turn lands, the furrows shining with wet, rushes on the wastes on the sides of the road. Here there is a common, part of which has been enclosed and thrown out again, or, rather, the fences carried away. There is a frost this morning, some ice, and the women look rosy-cheeked. There is a very great variety of soil along this road, bottom of yellow clay, then of sand, then of sandstone, then of soldier's stone, then for about five miles of chalk, then of red clay, then chalk again. Here, before you come to Sevenoaks, is a most beautiful and rich valley extending from east to west, with rich cornfields and fine trees. Then comes sandstone again, and the hop-gardens near Sevenoaks, which is a pretty little town, with beautiful environs, part of which consists of the park of Knoll, the seat of the Duchess of Dorset. It is a very fine place, and there is another park on the other side of the town, so that this is a delightful place, and the land appears to be very good. The gardens and houses all look neat and nice. On quitting Sevenoaks you come to a bottom of gravel for a short distance, and to a clay for many miles. When I say that I saw teams carting gravel from this spot to a distance of nearly ten miles along the road, the reader will be at no loss to know what sort of bottom the land has all along here. The bottom then becomes sandstone again. This vein of land runs all along through the county of Sussex, and the clay runs into Hampshire, across the forests of Beer and Waltham, then across the parishes of Ouselbury, Stoke, and passing between the sand hills of Southampton and chalk hills of Winchester, goes westward till stopped by the chalky downs between Romsey and Salisbury. Tunbridge is a small but very nice town, and has some fine meadows and a navigable river. The rest of the way to battle presents, alternately, clay and sandstone. Of course the coppices and oak woods are very frequent. There is now and then a hop-garden spot, and now and then an orchard of apples or cherries. But these are poor indeed, compared with what you see about Canterbury and Maidstone. The agricultural state of the country, or rather the quality of the land, from Bromley to Battle, may be judged of from the fact that I did not see, as I came along, more than thirty acres of Swedes during the fifty-six miles. In Norfolk I should, in the same distance, have seen five hundred acres. However, man was not the maker of the land, and as to human happiness, I am of opinion that as much, and even more, falls to the lot of the leather-legged chaps that live in and rove about amongst those clays and woods as to the more regularly disciplined labourers of the rich and prime parts of England. As God has made the back to the burthen, so the clay and coppice people make the dress to the stubs and bushes. 
Under the sole of the shoe is iron. From the sole, six inches upwards, is a high low. Then comes a leather bam to the knee. Then comes a pair of leather breeches. Then comes a stout doublet. Over this comes a smock-frock. And the wearer sets brush and stubs and thorns and mire at defiance. I have always observed that woodland and forest labourers are best off in the main. The coppices give them pleasant and profitable work in winter. If they have not so great a corn harvest, they have a three weeks harvest in April or May, that is to say, in the season of barking, which in Hampshire is called stripping, and in Sussex flaying, which employs women and children as well as men. And then in the great article of fuel, they buy none. It is miserable work where this is to be bought, and where, as at Salisbury, the poor take by turns the making of fires at their houses to boil four or five tea-kettles. What a winter life must those lead, whose turn it is not to make the fire. At Launston in Cornwall a man, a tradesman too, told me, that the people in general could not afford to have fire in ordinary, and that he himself paid three pence for boiling a leg of mutton at another man's fire. The leather-legged race know none of these miseries at any rate. They literally get their fuel by hook or by crook, whence doubtless comes that old and very expressive saying, which is applied to those cases where people will have a thing by one means or another. Battle, Thursday night, 3rd January, 1822. Today there has been a meeting here of the landlords and farmers in this part of Sussex, which is called the Rape of Hastings. The object was to agree on a petition to Parliament praying for relief. Good God! Where is this to end? We now see the effects of those rags which I have been railing against for the last twenty years. Here were collected together not less than three hundred persons, principally landlords and farmers, brought from their homes by their distresses and by their alarms for the future. Never were such things heard in any country before, and it is useless to hope, for terrific must be the consequences, if an effectual remedy be not speedily applied. The town, which is small, was in a great bustle before noon, and the meeting, in a large room in the principal inn, took place about one o'clock. Lord Ashburnham was called to the chair, and there was present Mr. Curtis, one of the county members, Mr. Fuller, who formerly used to cut such a figure in the House of Commons, Mr. Lamb, and many other gentlemen of landed property within the rape or district for which the meeting was held. Mr. Curtis, after Lord Ashburnham had opened the business, addressed the meeting. Mr. Fuller then tendered some resolutions, describing the fallen state of the landed interest, and proposing to pray generally for relief. Mr. Britton complained that it was not proposed to pray for some specific measure, and insisted that the cause of the evil was the rise in the value of money without a corresponding reduction in the taxes. A committee was appointed to draw up a petition, which was next produced. It merely described the distress and prayed generally for relief. Mr. Holloway proposed an addition, containing an imputation of the distress to restricted currency and unabated taxation, and praying for a reduction of taxes. A discussion now arose upon two points. First, whether the addition were admissible at all, and second, whether Mr. Holloway was qualified to offer it to the meeting. Both the points having been at last decided in the affirmative, the addition or amendment was put and lost, and then the original petition was adopted. After the business of the day was ended, there was a dinner in the inn, in the same room where the meeting had been held. I was at this dinner, and Mr. Britton having proposed my health, and Mr. Curtis, who was in the chair, having given it, I thought it would have looked like mock modesty, which is, in fact, only another term for hypocrisy, to refrain from expressing my opinions upon a point or two connected with the business of the day. 
I shall now insert a substantially correct sketch of what the company was indulgent enough to hear from me at the dinner, which I take from the report contained in the morning chronicle of Saturday last. The report in the chronicle has all the pith of what I advanced relative to the inutility of corn-bills, and relative to the cause of further declining prices, two points of the greatest importance in themselves, and which I was, and am, uncommonly anxious to press upon the attention of the public. The following is a part of the speech so reported. I am decidedly of opinion, gentlemen, that a corn-bill of no description, no matter what its principles or provisions, can do either tenant or landlord any good. And I am not less decidedly of opinion, that though prices are now low, they must, all the present train of public measures continuing, be yet lower, and continue lower, upon an average of years and of seasons. As to a corn-bill, a law to prohibit or check the importation of human food is a perfect novelty in our history, and ought, therefore, independent of the reason, and the recent experience of the case, to be received and entertained with great suspicion. Heretofore, premiums have been given for the exportation, and at other times for the importation of corn. But of laws to prevent the importation of human food, our ancestors knew nothing. And what says recent experience? When the present corn bill was passed, I, then a farmer, unable to get my brother farmers to join me, petitioned singly against this bill, and I stated to my brother farmers that such a bill could do us no good, while it would not fail to excite against us the ill-will of the other classes of the community, a thought by no means pleasant. Thus has it been. The distress of agriculture was considerable in magnitude then, but what is it now? And yet the bill was passed. That bill which was to remunerate and protect is still in force. The farmers got what they prayed to have granted them, and their distress with a short interval of tardy pace has proceeded rapidly increasing from that day to this. What in the way of corn-bill can you have, gentlemen, beyond absolute prohibition? And have you not, since about April 1819, had absolute prohibition? Since that time no corn has been imported, and then only thirty millions of bushels, which, supposing it all to have been wheat, was a quantity much too insignificant to produce any sensible depression in the price of the immense quantity of corn raised in this kingdom since the last bushel was imported. If your produce had fallen in this manner, if your prices had come down very low, immediately after the importation had taken place, there might have been some colour of reason to impute the fall to the importation. But it so happens, and as if for the express purpose of contradicting the crude notions of Mr. Webb Hall, that your produce has fallen in price at a greater rate, in proportion as time has removed you from the point of importation. And as to the circumstance, so ostentatiously put forward by Mr. Hall and others, that there is still some of the imported corn unsold, what does it prove but the converse of what those gentlemen aim at, that is to say, that the holders cannot afford to sell it at present prices? For if they could gain but ever so little by the sale, would they keep it wasting and costing money in warehouse? There appears with some persons to be a notion that the importation of corn is a new thing. They seem to forget that, during the last war, when agriculture was so prosperous, the ports were always open, that prodigious quantities of corn were imported during the war, that so far from importation being prohibited, high premiums were given, paid out of the taxes, partly raised upon English farmers, to induce men to import corn. All this seems to be forgotten as much as if it had never taken place. And now the distress of the English farmer is imputed to a cause which was never before an object of his attention, and a desire is expressed 
to put an end to a branch of commerce which the nation has always freely carried on i think gentlemen that here are reasons quite sufficient to make any man but mr webb hall slow to impute the present distress to the importation of corn but at any rate what can you have beyond absolute efficient prohibition no law no duty however high nothing that the parliament can do can go beyond this and this you now have in effect as completely as if this were the only country beneath the sky for these reasons gentlemen and to state more would be a waste of your time and an affront to your understandings i am convinced that in the way of corn bill it is impossible for the parliament to afford you any even the smallest portion of relief as to the other point gentlemen the tendency which the present measures and course of things have to carry prices lower and considerably lower than they now are and to keep them for a permanency at that low rate this is a matter worthy of the serious attention of all connected with the land and particularly of that of the renting farmer during the war no importations distressed the farmer it was not till peace came that the cry of distress was heard but during the war there was a boundless issue of paper money those issues were instantly narrowed by the peace the law being that the bank should pay in cash six months after the peace should take place this was the cause of that distress which led to the present corn bill the disease occasioned by the preparations for cash payments has been brought to a crisis by mr peel's bill which has in effect doubled if not tripled the real amount of the taxes and violated all contracts for time given triple gains to every lender and placed every borrower in jeopardy kensington friday fourth january eighteen twenty two got home from battle i had no time to see the town having entered the inn on wednesday in the dusk of the evening having been engaged all day yesterday in the inn and having come out of it only to get into the coach this morning i had not time to go even to see battle abbey the seat of the webster family now occupied by a man of the name of alexander thus they replaced them it will take a much shorter time than most people imagine to put out all the ancient families i should think that six years will turn out all those who receive nothing out of taxes the greatness of the estate is no protection to the owner for great or little it will soon yield him no rents and when the produce is nothing in either case the small estate is as good as the large one mr curtis said that the land was immovable yes but the rents are not and if freeholds cannot be seized for common contract debts the carcass of the owner may but in fact there will be no rents and without these the ownership is an empty sound thus at last the burthen will as i always said it would fall upon the landowner and as the fault of supporting the system has been wholly his the burthen will fall upon the right back whether he will now call in the people to help him to shake it off is more than i can say but if he do not i am sure that he must sink under it and then will revolution number one have been accomplished but far and very far indeed will that be from being the close of the drama i cannot quit battle without observing that the country is very pretty all about it all hill or valley a great deal of woodland in which the underwood is generally very fine though the oaks are not very fine and a good deal covered with moss this shows that the clay ends before the tap-root of the oak gets as deep as it would go for when the clay goes the full depth the oaks are always fine the woods are too large and too near each other for hare-hunting and as to coursing it is out of the question here but it is a fine country for shooting and for harbouring game of all sorts it was rainy as i came home but the woodmen were at work a great many hop-poles are cut here which makes the coppices more valuable than in many other parts the women work in the coppices 
shaving the bark of the hop poles, and indeed at various other parts of the business. These poles are shaved to prevent maggots from breeding in the bark, and accelerating the destruction of the pole. It is curious that the bark of trees should generate maggots, but it has, as well as the wood, a sugary matter in it. The hickory wood in America sends out from the ends of the logs, when these are burning, great quantities of the finest syrup that can be imagined. Accordingly, that wood breeds maggots, or worms, as they are usually called, surprisingly. Our ash breeds worms very much. When the tree or pole is cut, the moist matter between the outer bark and the wood putrefies. Thence come the maggots, which soon begin to eat their way into the wood. For this reason the bark is shaved off the hop-poles, as it ought to be off all our timber-trees, as soon as cut, especially the ash. Little boys and girls shave hop-poles and assist in other coppice-work very nicely, and it is pleasant work when the weather is dry overhead. The woods, bedded with leaves as they are, are clean and dry underfoot. They are warm, too, even in the coldest weather. When the ground is frozen several inches deep in the open fields, it is scarcely frozen at all in a coppice, where the underwood is a good plant, and where it is nearly high enough to cut, so that the woodman's is really a pleasant life. We are apt to think that the birds have a hard time of it in winter, but we forget the warmth of the woods, which far exceeds anything to be found in farmyards. When Sidmouth started me from my farm in 1817, I had just planted my farmyard round with a pretty coppice. But never mind. Sidmouth and I shall, I dare say, have plenty of time and occasion to talk about that coppice, and many other things, before we die. And can I, when I think of these things, now pity those to whom Sidmouth owed his power of starting me? But let me forget the subject for this time, at any rate. Woodland countries are interesting on many accounts. Not so much on account of their masses of green leaves, as on account of the variety of sights and sounds and incidents that they afford. Even in winter the coppices are beautiful to the eye, while they comfort the mind with the idea of shelter and warmth. In spring they change their hue from day to day, during two whole months, which is about the time from the first appearance of the delicate leaves of the birch to the full expansion of those of the ash. And even before the leaves come at all to intercept the view, what in the vegetable creation is so delightful to behold as the bed of a coppice bespangled with primroses and bluebells? The opening of the birch leaves is a signal for the pheasant to begin to crow, for the blackbird to whistle and the thrush to sing, and just when the oak buds begin to look reddish, and not a day before, the whole tribe of finches burst forth in songs from every bough, while the lark, imitating them all, carries the joyous sounds to the sky. These are amongst the means which Providence has benignantly appointed to sweeten the toils by which food and raiment are produced. These the English ploughman could once hear, without the sorrowful reflection that he himself was a pauper, and that the bounties of nature had for him been scattered in vain. And shall he never see an end to this state of things? Shall he never have the due reward of his labour? Shall unsparing taxation never cease to make him a miserable, dejected being, a creature famishing in the midst of abundance, fainting, expiring with hunger's feeble moans, surrounded by a carolling creation? Oh, accursed paper-money! Has hell a torment surpassing the wickedness of thy inventor? End of chapter 5